This podcast is brought to you by Vinzero. Vinzero pioneers solutions and services to the AEC and manufacturing industries to support net zero targets. Visit Vinzero.com to learn more about how organisations design, build and solve through digitalisation. From Vinzero to you, welcome to our Think Future podcast series. Each week we'll share conversations with industry leaders from around the world to find out how they're thinking future. Subscribe to Vinzero Think Future for access to more episodes, interviews and profiles. Bob Willard is a leading expert on quantifying the business value of sustainability strategies with a PhD in sustainability from the University of Toronto. Amongst his impressive qualifications, he serves on the Future Fit Foundation Board, the Sustainable Purchasing Leadership Council Board and the B Corp Standards Advisory Council, having earned 11 Best of the World awards as a certified B Corp himself. Bob's purpose is to help organisations take positive and practical steps towards meaningful sustainability outcomes. He has given over 1,500 presentations, authored six books, published two white papers, and provides extensive, free, open-source resources for sustainability champions. He joins us today to share the importance of actions over words for the health of both people and planet. Welcome to the program, Bob. I'm glad to be here. Bob, as an expert in the business case for sustainability, can you walk us through your background and the scope of your experience to start with? Oh, sure. First of all, I'm somebody who had a career in IBM Canada that uh, had nothing to do with sustainability for about 34 years. I took uh, early retirement in 2000, and since then I've been pretty focused on sustainability. I'm really concerned, especially about climate change. I've written a number of books, about six books, on um, how to quantify the business benefits of doing more on environmental and social things than a company might already be doing, how to measure that, how to engage executives that aren't necessarily as interested in this as we are in the topic, uh, how to lead a change. And I do talks. I I create resources uh, for people that are working with customers, working with clients that are trying to improve their track record on sustainability. So I've got about a dozen free open source resources on my website that people are encouraged to use to help their clients assess how they're doing and develop a business case to be able to justify doing better. So where did the strong desire to immerse yourself in sustainability originate from? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Uh, Well, it started with some concerns at a personal level of um, some water quality issues in a place in Ontario that I was living at the time. And the effort to try to get the water treatment plant moved to a location that we thought would be better wasn't very successful. But it did wake me up to the fact that there are some things going on that I needed to get a little bit closer to. Uh, I always assumed naively that the people who were looking after us were looking after us. I just kind of assumed that they were doing the right things. And that experience kind of woke me up to the fact that uh, that wasn't necessarily the case. So I started to take some courses at the University of Toronto as part of a part-time master's that I was doing at the time while I was still at IBM uh, on what's going on with environmental issues in particular. And it was pretty depressing. I, I, I frankly had no idea that we had some of the issues that we do have as a human race. And I thought, geez, we got to fix this because I've got kids and now I've got grandkids. So uh, this is kind of important. It's it's personal. 
but governments can't do what needs to be done by themselves. And we need to engage businesses and businesses can't justify doing something that, that doesn't have some benefits to them as a byproduct of doing them. So I needed to uh, figure out how to do a business case to engage companies in that. That was my master's thesis. I converted that into a book. Then I did a doctorate on how to overcome objections and that kind of thing. So I, I've been doing talks and creating resources and trying to um, get the powers that be to do the right things, especially on climate change, on waste, on issues that are more and more pressing with every passing year. So let's dig into that a little bit then. In our Think Future podcast, we're focused very much on the built environment. What are the market forces you're seeing across the world when it comes to the construction industry? Yeah, they're pretty much the same as they are for any sector, actually. The big issues that are causing the market forces are concern about climate change, about waste, especially plastics, and circular, circularity, and also from a social point of view, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So if you think of those big issues, the stakeholders who are important for most companies, including construction companies, are starting to get a little bit twitchy about all of these things and becoming more and more demanding that organizations that they are giving business to are paying attention to these things in the right way. So if you're a government, uh, you want the companies that you're dealing with to be uh, working on reducing their greenhouse gases, using recycled material, that, that kind of thing. And in the case of equity and diversity and inclusion, uh, treating their people well and making sure that you're giving employment opportunities to people that might not otherwise have the, those kinds of opportunities. In the construction industry, that's especially important because we're kind of running out of people that are skilled in the trades that we need. And that's true all over the world. Basically, the, the market forces are the concern that investors, governments, banks, customers have, which is a lot higher these days than it used to be, on what's going on with the climate change, on waste, and on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And of course, some of those topics were covered in the UNEP report around public procurement. Yeah, so the governments have enormous buying power, as you know. It's just incredible. In Canada, the federal government of Canada has about $22 billion worth of goods and services that they acquire every year. And then we have 10 provinces and territories and a bunch of municipalities, about 3,000. And if we put the buying power of all of them together, we end up with about $220 billion worth of buying power every year. Enormous. That UN report talked about how governments around the world are focused on what it is that they buy, what it is that they buy, and then the top five things that, that they buy, according to their report, uh, were office equipment, office IT equipment in particular. That was the, actually, that was the biggest one. The second was energy supply and energy services. So that gets into construction very quickly. Uh, the third one was vehicles. So uh, converting their fleets to electric vehicles, especially. And then the fourth and fifth ones were building design and construction and infrastructure design and construction. So building and infrastructure are very, very high on the list of expenditures of governments all over the world. So in Canada, for example, we're getting really into 
trying to make sure that we have a focus on low carbon concrete and green steel in infrastructure. And we've got a buy clean strategy at the federal level, uh, which is incenting the procurement part of the federal government to uh, pay special attention to that. And uh, there's an enormous amount of work that's being done on all of that as well. I'm on uh, an external advisory committee for the federal government purchasing department called Low Carbon Procurement. And they're looking at the attributes, carbon footprints, of um, office furniture, of electric vehicles, and strangely, <laughs> of professional services, <laughs> consulting services. It's, uh, the carbon footprint of consulting services is a bit of a, <laughs> a black art, but they're, they're spending an enormous amount on consultants as a government. So they thought they should take a look at the carbon footprint of those expenditures. And you dive into that a little deeper in one of your papers, the 21st Century Sustainable Enterprise Force Field, where you talk about the government in Canada and their infrastructure construction projects. So can you tell us a bit more about that and other driving forces for the global market that you uncover in that paper? We've been trying to get organizations of all kind, not only construction, architectural construction and design companies, but companies of all kinds, to pay more attention to their impacts on people and planet. And that's been quite a slog to try to be able to do that. Uh, and now we're finding that there are some unusual voices in the chorus, uh, bankers and investors and insurers are getting really twitchy about whether companies are ready for climate change. You may have heard of something called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, TCFD. And really what that was saying is that lenders need to be a little bit more careful about where they put their money and investors as well. And part of that care is taking a look at the risk that these companies are exposed to from climate change, the impacts of climate change on them. Are they ready for it? And how is, how is climate change going to impact them in the future? So when we talk about market forces, what we're talking about is the pressure on companies by really important stakeholders like providers of capital, banks and, and investors, and customers, if they're especially public sector customers, that are wanting to deal with and do business with organizations that are not only ready for climate change, but not making contributions to the problem in the first place, that is reducing their greenhouse gases. So those are unusual pressures. Previously, it was, you know, people that really cared about this, non-governmental organizations and civil society and so on, that was encouraging the businesses to clean up their act. But now we have investors, even the Securities Exchange Commission, uh, maybe the same in Australia, but the SEC in the United States, which is the organization that asks companies to disclose information about themselves to investors each year, uh, the Form 10K that they, that they fill out. And part of what they're asking now is, would you please tell us how ready you are for climate change? That gets the attention of companies that want to stay listed on those exchanges. It's the same in Canada. The, the Canadian securities administrators are looking at similar kinds of things, TCFD kinds of criteria and disclosures. So when you get, when you get those big traditional hard-nosed 
market forces asking questions that used to be asked by tree huggers, all of a sudden the answers matter. So there are wonderfully aggressive and influential factors in play these days that are causing much more attention to these issues than they used to get. And we're also seeing a rise in funding geared towards sustainability initiatives as well. Absolutely. And of course, as things get worse and worse from a climate change point of view, the flood control, uh, the forest fires, Canada, frankly, is on fire this summer. Uh, We've got fires in every province. Uh, We've got about 230 as of today that are out of control. There are whole cities that are being evacuated in the northern part of Canada. So we, we've, <laughs> we've never experienced this before, and those of us that aren't close to those fires are getting the impacts of them with the smoke that is drifting down towards us. So the impact of all of this has woken companies and governments up to the fact that they need to do something on this. So the aggressiveness of some of the initiatives is significantly higher than it used to be. And a lot of that ties back to the readiness of the infrastructure for the kinds of experiences, especially severe weather events, that they're going to have. So that's a good segue to the question around the business case for sustainability for construction. What does that need to look like in order for construction to be future fit? Well, it's pretty much the same as the business case for green buildings. And you've got the the Green Star standard in Australia, in North America, the LEED standard or BOMA BEST. Uh, or the Living Building Challenge. I mean, there are some really, really good standards that are being used in the construction sector. And of course, most of those are equally applicable to infrastructure as well as to buildings. So when you think of what's what's in it for an organization to have a green building, the benefits are, are pretty straightforward. Of course, there are the usual savings on energy and water and waste and so on. The productivity of the people in those buildings is going to be higher as well. The future value of those facilities is going to be higher. You can charge higher rent because people are going to be more productive in those things. So a lot of the rationale for why you would undertake uh, a green building in the first place is based on either savings or additional benefits that are easily quantifiable. And in fact, very often I I use a green building example when I'm talking about justifying a sustainability kind of project. A lot of those benefits apply to infrastructure projects as well. So the cost justification is less of an issue than it used to be, mostly because of not only those benefits, but the risk avoidance part. And very often when we talk about the business case, we don't think about the part of the business case, which is avoiding risks and the value of avoiding risks. And as we get into severe weather events, that value is becoming more and more important as a part of the rationale for doing something that otherwise you might not do. So of course, that's making the business case a lot more compelling than a decade ago. Can you explain the power of procurement then across the supply chain for AEC operators, manufacturing, all those sectors? Yeah, uh, procurement is an incredibly powerful market force itself, which has is frankly not been exploited very well, either by the public sector or the private sector. But if we get into sustainable procurement, and sustainable procurement is getting best value for money, not necessarily the lowest price, 
the best value for money by making sure you're getting the most sustainable goods and services, so those are the products, from the most sustainable suppliers. And that's the company that's producing the products. So we're looking at two things, the attributes of the goods and services and the attributes of the company itself as an enterprise. So if the bid appraisal starts to uh, give some significant points, some significant weight to those factors, all of a sudden they become important. So uh, as part of my role on the board of the Sustainable Purchasing Leadership Council, which is a mostly American organization, but as a Canadian, I'm, <laughs> I'm on their board. Uh, I've been working with their staff on a, an assessment that allows a company to self-assess the extent to which they have integrated sustainable procurement into their procurement processes. And it looks at the weighting that they give to the sustainability-related attributes of the product, the goods and services, as well as the weighting that it gives to how sustainable the company itself is, how it's doing on the usual things that we would look for uh, in terms of their impact on environment and people. So when we talk about weighting, we're talking about at least 10% of the points should be allocated to those things. Make it matter. And when you start to make it matter, it becomes uh, a very, very strong market force to drive different behaviors, different business models in the suppliers. So uh, the public sector with its buying power can start to unleash that. They're already getting into it a little bit with uh, some of their larger suppliers, but it's uh, to me, it's an untapped and overdue market force. So with the areas that you touch on and the exposure you have across industry, what sort of trends are you seeing in regards to procurement outside of Canada? Yeah, it's slow. It, it's, it's really slow. I mean, there's a lot of lip service paid to sustainable procurement. But in RFPs, they're asking more questions about the environmental attributes of the product, especially the recycled content and energy efficiency and all that good stuff. But they don't give it many points. So it, they're not making it matter. And, and to me, I used to, <laughs> when I was in IBM, I would sell computer systems to governments and big corporations. We would get requests for proposals, RFPs. When we got the request for proposal, the first thing we looked at was how many points, how many points did this RFP assign to each of the criteria that they were asking us to meet? And of course, the, the ones with the highest points were the ones we paid the most attention to. So it drove our behavior. And we wanted to make darn sure we were better than our competitors on the ones that had the uh, highest point value in the bid appraisal. So when you want to send signals to the marketplace about what's important, the fastest and easiest way to do that is weight it, give it a lot of points in a, in a bid. So if we're doing infrastructure projects and we want to make sure that the steel is green steel, or the, the concrete is uh, low carbon concrete, then you need to give a lot of points to those kinds of things. And if you want the prime contractor to have a, a community benefits agreement, a CBA, with the organization that is putting out this RFP, what you might want to put into that is that they subcontract to some of the more disadvantaged 
folks in the local area, that they use local materials, that they engage with the community in a, in a way that's going to end up with benefits for the community, maybe better roads to the whatever facility that they're, they're building and so on. So that you, you put a bunch of things in there that ensure that some of the social things are included as well as the environmental things. So the power of procurement is enormous if we use it properly, and it's high time we did. What's it going to take to seed that change at scale? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I have a lot of conversations with the federal types uh, in Canada, and it's so frustrating. I, I, I'll be very straight with you. They, the conversations are always very pleasant and very agreeable. And they agree that we should be doing more faster. But then they don't. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I'm not sure what it takes. I've been only working on this for you know two or three years. And most of that is is building up relationships and trust and so on. So they understand that I've, I'm not doing this so that I'm going to make a whole lot of money on a contract because, frankly, I'm not eligible because I'm on some of their committees. Uh, I'm doing this because I care about it. Um, so in Canada, for example, we've got a requirement that if you're doing over $25 million worth of business with the federal government in a year, you are required, you are required to disclose your commitment to net zero targets. In other words, how committed are you to getting your greenhouse gases down to, reduced to uh, zero by 2050 and halfway there by 2030? So how's that going? So you need to disclose that if you're one of the big guys. And I'm saying it shouldn't be just the big guys. It should be everybody. Everybody should be. Even the little, little companies need to get their heads together on this. So in Canada, we've got that. In the U.S., they're a little bit more granular. It's more like a $7 million annual expenditure of the federal government with them in the U.S. Uh, in the U.K., it's more like £50 million. Pounds. So it, it, it depends on the, on the jurisdiction. In Europe, it's way ahead of us. And it's all good. It's just that they need to take that idea and, and make sure that it goes through the entire supply chain. Are you looking for a digitalization and net zero partner to help you achieve your goals? Join the thousands of AEC and manufacturing customers globally who have turned to VinZero to start their journey toward a net zero future. With 32 offices around the world, VinZero can connect you to the right technologies and workflow processes so you can maintain your competitive position and increase profitability. VinZero has an industry expert to help you navigate the best pathway forward wherever you are on your digitalization and net zero journey. Visit VinZero.com to find out more. My word, Bob, 1,600 talks, two white papers and six books in just a few years. It's certainly been a busy few years at that. So so let's just move beyond procurement and dig deeper into the 2030 goals that we have across industry. What do you see apart from procurement as the main barriers to reaching those goals? What are the main concerns? Most companies think it's mission impossible, and they also think that it won't matter if they don't make it. Uh, so the inhibitors are basically that they they think that they can get away with saying that they're going to do it, and then as they get closer to the deadline, 
uh, they'll say, well, geez, we just can't, we just can't do it. And why would they think that? Because the federal governments of all the countries, 194 countries that go to COPs each year, have gotten away with making pledges that they don't meet. Canada has made pledges for the last 27 years, and they haven't met one of them. So if we expect these other organizations to meet the pledges that they're making, we're not really modeling the way on, on doing that. So our track record as uh, governments is pitiful on our ability to, and the pledges themselves don't allow us to meet the targets that are being set by the climate scientists on this. So we've got a significant number of challenges uh, to be able to put some teeth into uh, the commitments that organizations are signing up for on getting their greenhouse gases down. The Science-Based Targets Initiative, SBTI, Science-Based Targets Initiative is the one is the organization that verifies that the plan that they say they're going to follow will actually do what they say that it's going to do. And they're getting more aggressive on kicking companies out of SBTI, including Amazon, who they say, you know, you're making pledges you're not going to be able to meet. You don't have a plan to meet them. So goodbye. So we, we definitely need the governance. And, and I guess what you're saying there is that we cannot rely on government to solve these issues. It's going to need to be driven by the sector. Uh, when we're talking about reducing the gases to 1.5, that is an average, as we know. It's not, you know, some countries need to reduce by a lot more than that. So we're certainly going to need to look directly at the sector that's contributing. Yes. And a lot of this has to do with the power of the lobbies of the fossil fuel companies that are incredibly powerful, really, really powerful. But getting them to stop producing fossil fuels is a fool's game. It's never going to happen. What we have to do is reduce the demand for that supply. So go after the demand side rather than the supply side. And the demand side it basically means we have to get to the point that we are using renewable energy to the to the extent that we will not any longer require fossil fuels. So you don't need them, leave them in the ground. But we have to get to that point, which means that we have to transition to renewable energy. Pretty straightforward. Electrify everything and power it with renewable energy. So the other thing is the mindset, not only in the construction sector, but all sectors. And this was the topic of my doctoral thesis. What is the inhibitor of companies doing more on environmental and social things if the business case is all that fantastic? Because I'd shown that the business case was fantastic. So why aren't they doing it? And the number one reason is mindset. They think that it's going to be way too expensive. It's always been more expensive to do the right thing. So it's going to be way more expensive. Turns out it's not. That they also think that it's it, it's going to drag them down, that it's going to slow them down, that, that all of this environmental concern and so on is going to inhibit the growth of the organization. And again, that's not true, but their mindset that, that's been drilled into them by business schools and just the business community and the, the mindset of neoliberalism and, and capitalism and so on just makes all of this stuff sound like it's... Um, it's going to get in the way of them achieving the profits that they feel that they are able to attain. So how to overcome the mindset? I, I'm really not sure. But the uh, 
the purpose of the organization in the first place? Is it purpose-driven? Is it, a, is it a, an organization which is going to be doing the right things to improve the well-being of all stakeholders, not only their shareholders, but stakeholders like customers, like employees, like communities, like suppliers, like the environment, like society at large? Uh, they're all stakeholders. And the primacy of stakeholders versus shareholders is getting a little bit of traction, but we need to keep working on that. So what are some of the tools out there that might be available to help us raise awareness with stakeholders to move the industry to overcome the barriers as we move towards that net zero goal? Well, there are a bunch of tools that I think we need. And the good news is that they're becoming more available. I've got a bunch on my website, which are free and open source, and they they help in some areas. They, for example, there are some tools that help a company assess how it's doing on environmental and social impacts. So it's a, just a little questionnaire, about 20 questions, but it asks about the normal 18 things that, that people normally expect to see in a report. So we're getting better at being able to do that kind of assessment. And then after you've done the assessment, you take a look at the scores and you, and you see which ones do you want to improve? And how do you justify that? So there are other tools that help justify that that are also on my website. The business case for a project that you might want to undertake and you have to be able to defend it with your CFO. And then there are sustainable procurement toolkits. You can plug in the elements, the core elements of sustainable procurement into an existing procurement system. So we're getting better at packaging this stuff. And I think that's really important because it's always seemed incredibly complex. I mean, sustainability is a big topic. It's got a big word to begin with. You know, it's got six syllables. Profit's got two. So it, it, it sounds like it's complicated. But we've, we've got uh, much better ways of showing that it doesn't have to be that hard. You can start with just little things. And, and once you engage your employees in it, magic happens and they'll figure out easy ways of doing things because they care about this stuff and it's important to them. And of course, you can always replace the word sustainability with the word purpose and you have a, a two-syllable word and that solves part of the issue. I love it. I love it. Bob, sounds like you've got a fantastic website there with lots of resources available. Can you share with our listeners what that web address is before we move on? So if, if people are interested in exploring what those uh, tools and resources are that I just mentioned... Uh, my website is sustainabilityadvantage.com, sustainabilityadvantage.com. And there are about a dozen free open source tools. And why are they free? And why are they open source? Because we can't afford the time to reinvent the wheel. And it's time that we started to share these things a little bit more so that we can get the pace of change and the scale of change up to where we need it. We need, don't need people wasting time recreating this stuff. So I, I amuse myself creating these kinds of tools and they're being used by hundreds, probably thousands of people around the world. I don't keep track of it all that carefully. And the intent is to make them more effective change agents and help them get us to where we need to be collectively in time. Thank you. So where do you see technology going as a tool for industry? Yeah, I think we get we need to get a lot smarter on how we exploit technology. In the construction sector, CAD CAM, of course, has been around for a long time. On the 
design of buildings and so on. But I think that as we get into AI and and other uses of technology, uh, we can be a lot more productive and we can allow for sudden changes and uh, the implications of all of those changes in a smarter way, logistical changes of materials and supplies that are going in, changes to the design of the building and the implications of that, the design of the HVAC systems and, and how all of those things are much more important than they used to be, especially with air quality concerns with COVID. So there are, there are a whole bunch of things that have always been involved in the, uh, the architecture and engineering and construction sector. But with the aid of technology, I think we can really exploit the possibilities much, much more smartly and completely than we have in the past. So there's a lot of talk going on beyond net zero. There's talk now more geared towards regenerative design, for example. What does it mean to you with respect to the built environment over the next 30 years or more? Yeah, it's it's got a nice ring to it. Uh, net positive, regenerative, restorative. Uh, they're all good things. And certainly we need a lot of those things because we've done a lot of damage that needs to be corrected. So it has a lot of sex appeal to, frankly, uh, not only do less harm, but do some good. And, and of course, from a marketing point of view, uh, doing good sounds a lot better than just doing less harm. So there's a lot of attraction to it, but it's, it's, it's a little uh, overhyped sometimes that you can do that instead of reducing some of the harm that you're doing, especially greenhouse gases. So if you're coming up with a technology which is extracting greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, and there are companies that are investing a lot in that, you want to make sure that those same, same companies aren't generating a lot of greenhouse gases through the process that they're using to extract greenhouse gases. So what we're trying to do is make sure that you're not only doing some good, being regenerative, but you're also reducing the harm that you're doing as well. In the case of a building, for example, if you want a uh, net zero building, that means that basically the building is absorbing, actively absorbing any of the greenhouse gas emissions that it's emitting and neutralizing their impact. In the case of additional techniques of green walls and uh, green roofs and so on, you may actually be, end up being net positive. But you need to do those calculations with a little bit more rigor than sometimes they are. Circular economy is getting a lot of uh, attention, and as well it should. The waste is a huge, huge problem. Not only plastics, but waste of all kinds. And most of the green building standards include making sure that the waste associated with the construction project, the uh, infrastructure project, is properly sorted and reclaimed as raw material. Uh, so the construction industry has been into the smart use of waste uh, and using waste as a resource uh, way ahead of, of most other sectors. So what we're talking about in, the, in terms of the construction industry is being extra careful about not only the waste that is coming out of a new project, but also paying more attention to the materials that are going into that and taking advantage of recycled materials as much as you can or low carbon materials, as we talked about in terms of concrete and steel. 
So the material is coming in and what you do with the waste that's going out. When the building is finished and you're starting to take a look at what the waste that's coming out of the building from the use by its occupants, there may be ways in which the construction industry can help with that sorting and uh, minimization as well. I think we just have to get better at appealing to benefits that matter to the people who are making the decisions. We've always assumed that the benefits that matter are the bottom line benefits, money. It may not be as dominant a benefit as it used to be. You mentioned purpose before. That benefit, if you're helping fulfill your purpose through the particular project that you're undertaking, that makes a huge difference. That matters. If it matters to your stakeholders uh, as to what you're doing, that matters as well. So, yeah, of course you need to worry about the bottom line and the cost and all that kind of thing as well. But there are other kinds of benefits that are starting to become more important. I'm a B Corp. I'm, I'm a purpose-driven sole proprietor. Uh, when I make decisions on what I do and how I do it, I'd say my purpose is at least 50% of the rationale for however I choose to do what I do. If it aligns with what I'm trying to do with myself, then that's fantastic. And I think that that mentality, mindset, is starting to creep into business a little bit more as um, employees become more vocal. If you, if you look at the most influential stakeholders on the C-suites of companies, they are employees, customers, and investors, usually in that order, employees first. So the concern that employees have, especially smart employees that have choices as to where they work, as to how committed their organization is to the issues that they care about, uh, that makes a huge difference. And if you want to keep good people, uh, you need to pay attention to things that they care about. Well, Bob, it's been really great to get your insight into what matters most and certainly to hear about the importance of balancing both people and planet. As we close out our conversation today, when you think future about the built environment and about the opportunities that lie ahead for improvement, what is it that excites you the most? I think the construction industry has an opportunity to um, lead a lot of the changes that we're looking at and show that it actually is smart. It's beneficial to the organizations themselves, that they're going to do better if they pay attention to these things. And the reason I say that is that the construction industry is, in many ways, in the eye of the storm of a lot of these issues. They are besieged by all of the issues that other companies are as well, but there are in many cases creating uh, opportunities to be able to deal with those issues. So I think the use of the, the, the technology in the architecture part, the materials in the construction part, the help in having the companies that end up owning these facilities, reducing the greenhouse gases that are coming out of those facilities, I mean, they can really make a huge, huge difference. And I think as the public sector, even the private sector, gets smarter on the way in which they issue RFPs and require some of these attributes, the construction industry can show that this is not an unnatural act for them. It's actually something that they're good at, they've been doing for years, 
and can really help us address some of the issues that are more pressing now than they used to be. Well, Bob, I think we should all be very grateful that sustainability is very much your purpose. And I thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to hearing more from you through your talks, your papers, and potentially more books. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. This podcast was brought to you by VinZero. VinZero helped the AEC and manufacturing industries keep pace with digital change and achieve their technological and sustainability leadership goals. VinZero is a company that cares about creating and building a better world. Together, we are working with industry and environmental experts, providing forums and platforms through our VinZero Think community to create conversations that matter to our future generations. We invite you to join in the conversation and participate in our Think community. Like and subscribe to Think Future to stay up to date with the latest innovations and conversations as we take AEC and manufacturing around the world closer to zero. You can download our podcast at binzero.com or from your favourite podcast platform. From Vinzero Think Future, thanks for listening.